Well, I do want to wrestle with a question together with you this morning, and the question is this, uh, what did it take to save us? What was necessary to save us? Now, it's an important question because there is a kind of Christianity that uh, is blasé about the things of Christ, is half-hearted, uh, is apathetic, is just sort of uh, couched in respectability but has no real substance to it. There's a kind of Christianity that drifts along and I, I, I want to suggest to you today that it's... Much of that is driven by a context where people simply don't understand what was necessary to save us. It's driven by people who don't appreciate what it took to save us. And if you can, simp if you can grasp that, it will change everything. You know, you think about being in hospital. Uh, I mentioned uh, the hospital thing. Um, you, you think about being in hospital and someone comes to visit you, uh, which Glyn often did. And interesting, over the years when Glyn did all of this thing, I would get people come to me, actually, by the way, just to voice a little pain here at the moment. Glyn, people would come to me and talk about how much Glyn loved them. And, uh, and I thought that was lovely, but sometimes it had an edge to it. That the word Glyn, he, the word, word he was used in a way that just had an edge to it. Glyn, he really loves us because he visited us in hospital. The point being, you didn't. You know, I, I would only visit if someone was dying, which did mean that if I visit you, there's a very good chance about what's going to happen next. I did, ha I did have this lady, actually. I, I had this uh, older, lovely saint amongst us who'd been with us many years, and, and uh, I'd heard that she was dying, though I heard wrong. <laughs> so I turned up into a hospital room, and the blood drained out of her face. <laughs> She looked at me and she, she went, uh, why are you here? <laughs> uh, but imagine, imagine you're in the hospital and uh, someone does come and visit you, uh, some lovely person, and, um, and you appreciate it, it's, it's lovely that they've done that. But then you find out that they've actually driven for five hours to get here just to visit you. And when you appreciate what it cost them to come, what was necessary for them to actually be with you and why they... Then you, you not only have a greater understanding, but a greater appreciation, thanks, gratitude. It changes everything, doesn't it? Do you find yourself this morning drifting as a Christian? Do you find yourself living a kind of a ho-hum Christian life? Somewhat apathetic, superficial. Do you find yourself going through the motions? Um, or do you find yourself even not sure you need saving? I want to suggest to you today that thinking into this is what you need. Thinking into what was necessary to save you. What did it take to save you? The more you can think into this, and not just think into it this morning, but think into it and reflect on it and reflect on it, it'll transform your life. It'll humble you and lift you up. And that's where we're going to head this morning. What was necessary? I'm going to suggest to you there were three things. Three things that were necessary. Uh, they're of different order between the three. One is at the core, the other is layers upon the core. So let's start with the core. But actually before, that, let me put it in context. Uh, we are looking at John chapter 11 and I'm going to suggest to you that it's from this chapter, this section of the Bible that uh, over the years, having looked at it more and more, I, I see that these things emerged, what was necessary to save us. The context, of course, is that Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, in the early part of chapter 11, uh, and that one of his, his last sign 
perhaps the greatest of his signs that point to his resurrection power, the fact that he has life in himself, that he is the one that gives life, an extraordinary sign to who he is. And he did it all by a word. Lazarus, come out. Wow. And more and more people, verse 45, so come now into the closer context, chapter 11, verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary, the the sister of Lazarus, had seen what Jesus did and believed in him. So there's an increasing group of people who are following Jesus, who are convinced that he's the one. Uh, And then you get verse uh, 46, um, that others didn't believe in him, didn't follow him, but rather they went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin is the ruling ruling council of the whole of Israel. Uh, this, is, this is the parliament, the, the, the senate, the, this is the great power. And it's in this meeting, recorded for us in this next little section, that we see what was needed, what was necessary to save us. So three things. What are the three things? I'm going to take you to the first one, which is the core one. And to do that, we're going to jump down a few verses. We'll come back to those ones we've missed in a moment. It's there in verse 49 and 50. What's the first, what's the first thing that's necessary? Here it is, substitution. I'm going to say that word a lot. Substitution. I want you to have that bouncing around in your head as you leave today. Sub, what's necessary? Substitution. Look at verse 49. Then one of them, named Caiaphas who was high priest that year, and he was. We know outside of the Bible that this is simply reporting history. Caiaphas, who was high priest that year during that time, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You don't know what you're talking about, uh, another way of translating it. You do not realise that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. You don't realise that it's better for you that one man die in the place of the people rather than the whole nation perish. Now, he's talking politically. Uh, He's realised that Jesus is a problem politically because I'll give a bit of background to make sense of this and we'll get the verses we've missed. Um, Jesus is growing a following. Now, the following is, people are more and more convinced that he is who he claims to be, the Messiah. What's the Messiah? The Messiah is a title that comes out of the Old Testament which was anticipating one day the Messiah, the anointed one would come who would be the great king of Israel and beyond. And Jesus comes speaking in these terms, acting in these terms, teaching along these lines. And I mean, anyone can say I'm the Messiah. But Jesus backs it up with substance. He is not just a brilliant teacher, but he has power like no one else has seen. Uh, and he has a character, a personality that is regal and extraordinary. Um, and so he's creating a following. The crowds are following. You can see there, verse 45, many of the Jews who had come had seen what they believed in him. Um, now, followed down, but some went to the Jews and Pharisees, called the meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is a man performing many signs. He's the, if we let him go on like this, Everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. You see, what's the problem? He's gaining a following as the king of Israel. And these astute leaders realise that if they let him just keep going uh, and gather such a crowd around him as the king, in this context time-wise, which is chapter 12, verse 1, just before the Passover... 
it's very likely to arouse the hostility of the Romans who will come and destroy the nation and destroy the temple. Now, that's not just uh, irrational fear. Rome was the overlord. Rome had conquered this region. Uh, it ruled the nation of Israel. They were a vassal state of the Roman Empire. And um, Rome was very sensitive to uprisings, determined to keep the peace. And any hint of it, they'd come and crush, brutally. In fact, we have a record that in AD 70, when there was an uprising some years after these events, where there was a rupture, Rome came and, and dismantled the temple stone upon stone, killed thousands. It was, it was a slaughter. So their fear is not irrational. Because what they realise is, with the following that Jesus is creating, at the Passover time, which was a period of nationalistic fervour, where people gathered into Jerusalem, we want to be our own nation. That was the period of Passover. With Jesus and this following, the crowds, whether or not Jesus, the crowds would stimulate this sense of uprising and Rome would see, Rome would come and destroy them. It would boil over into a revolution where Rome would come down hard. So these people weren't irrational. And Caiaphas, the politically savvy leader, realises that we're all going to be killed by Rome if we let Jesus go on like this. And so he says, to save the nation, he's got to die. Now, sure, Jesus is innocent, but Caiaphas justifies his death because it's better that one man die in the place of the nation dying. Better that one man dies as a substitute for the many. He's talking about substitution. Now, he's talking about substitution politically. But look at verse 51. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. This is the most extraordinary turn of events. John tells us that Caiaphas spoke words that were his very own words, thought up by Caiaphas. But behind those words was the sovereign, inspirational work of the Holy Spirit of God to cause him to say exactly the words that God wanted said as a prophecy. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied the very words of God. Without knowing he was a prophet, he prophesied the very, that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. He would die in the place of the Jewish nation, to save the Jewish nation, but not only for the Jewish nation, but for all the scattered children of God throughout all the world to bring them together and make them one. Caiaphas was speaking politically, but God gave him to say these words spiritually. Yes, Jesus will die as a substitute in the place of many to save them, but he will die to save them as a substitute for them, not just from the wrath of Rome, but from the righteous wrath of a holy God whose judgment will come upon human sin. He will die as a substitute in the place of many to pay for their sin and to gather them together to make them one, verse 52. Just an aside, you haven't got time to go into this. a whole area we'd love to explore, but um, it's an incredibly important reference actually to church. Uh, the intention of Jesus' death by God's hand is to not just uh, make it possible for sinners to um, uh, come out from under the wrath of God and have that paid for and so reconciled to God, 
but actually to be gathered together, to be gathered together as one. Now, in the first instance, it may well likely be a reference from Jeremiah chapter 3, where the scattered children of God are a, a way of talking about the Israelites who have scattered all around the world. But given an earlier reference and what happens in chapter 12, it is more deeply a reference to the nations outside of Israel being gathered in. That God has in his sovereign hand many throughout all the nations, throughout all the world, that he intends to gather to himself through the substitutionary work of Jesus. Which just reminds us that the very purpose of Jesus' death is not just you and me being saved, but you and me being saved and gathered together. Which is a way of saying that church is at the heart of God's purposes. You know, have you heard of oxymorons? Words that don't fit together. You know, there's some great oxymorons. Military intelligence is one of those great oxymorons. And Kelvin, our military intelligent person, that's where his job was in the past, um, which he makes the exception to. But military intelligence. Um, the other one I like is civil engineer. So if you could have those two together, it's not that funny, really, is it? But, um, <laughs> but I'll give you another oxymoron. It's solo Christian. It just makes no sense in God's purposes. God's purpose was to have Jesus die as a substitute to gather us together. At the very heart of his purposes for people is to not just be reconciled to himself, but to be reconciled to each other and brought to be one new people, Jew and Gentile, Israel and all the nations made one. Church is at the very heart of God's purposes, his saving purposes. You cannot be a Christian, or you cannot be a Christian who understands the gospel, uh, living the Christian life on your own and not part of church. You say, now what was necessary though? What was necessary to save spiritually is that Jesus dies in our place to deal with the wrath of the just and holy God against sin. The high priest could only see the problem of Rome and the solution was that Jesus dies as a substitute under the wrath of Rome instead of the nation dying under the wrath. That's all he could see. But behind that thinking was a deeper truth that was a God-given truth that Jesus did need to die to save us from sin. You know, this idea is not new in the account of Jesus. It pops up at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist sees Jesus walking towards him. Do you remember what John the Baptist says as Jesus comes? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right there, we're, we're, we're led into the very purpose of Jesus coming into the world. The Lamb of God, that's a reference to an Old Testament sacrificial system where, where a lamb would be slaughtered, where its blood would be shed uh, as a substitute for sinful humanity so that the wrath of God, the just holy judgment of God, would be poured upon the, the animal instead of, and so that the human could go free. It's a reference to that sacrificial system and John sees in Jesus the Lamb of God who would deal with the sin not just of Israel, but the sin of the whole world. All nations would be dealt with by this powerful saving work of Jesus' death. What was necessary to make it possible for you and me to be saved? First, that someone dies in our place. That someone gives their life so that you might not die. 
In chapter 11 earlier, he says that he's, Jesus says he's the resurrection of the life. Uh, whoever believes in me shall not die. What we see here is how it is that he can be the resurrection of life. He's the resurrection of life because in himself is life. He's able to give life. But how is he able to give life to sinners? Because he who is life gives up his life so that sinners who put their trust in Jesus can be forgiven. Now, this is massively humbling, isn't it? It does raise questions for us, and maybe you've got them in your mind now. Did it really need that? Was it really necessary that someone dies for my sin? You know, this is one of the great questions of our culture, actually. It's one of the great divisions between contemporary secular society and biblical Christianity. Uh, this thought about the, is sin really that serious? That someone has to die because of it? I mean, sin, what is sin? Well, at one level, sin just horizontally is about being selfish, greedy, living for yourself. But at a deeper level, it's a vertical thing. It's betraying God. It's being so self-centered that I've broken myself away from my Lord and God, the giver of life, to live my own life, my own way. It's to betray Him, to be treasonous against Him. Um, now, lots of people deny that we are sinful. Um, but even when people accept the idea of sin... Many are still left with the question, is it really that big a deal? We're all less than perfect. Sure, none of us are. But really, someone has to die because of it? This is the challenge. Christianity is emphatic that this is the case. The whole sacrificial system was, was to designed to communicate this again and again, that blood needs to be shed because of sin. The death of Jesus is presented to deal with sin. But how, how do we communicate to each other? How do we get clear with each other that sin really is that serious? Well, there's two ways you could do it. One way is to dig into the nature of sin and how uh, it's part of your life and how it shapes things and how it's a betrayal against the infinite majesty of a holy God. There's all kinds of ways you could reflect on sin itself. But I think another way to come at it is to look at what was necessary to save us from it. It was necessary for Jesus to die. Let me give you an illustration. I, um, uh, it's not a great illustration, it's the best I can come up with, I don't have a lot of great illustrations, but many years ago uh, in our backyard was a golden cane palm, a very big, you know, that sprouting all over the place palm, um, and uh, we decided to get rid of it. And so I, one Saturday morning, I decided to give it, a, give it a couple of hours to dig it out. And so I started early and started digging. And uh, after a couple of hours, I figured it's probably time. So I put some ropes around it, created a pulley system, because I am an engineer, civil engineer. I put a pulley system around it and kind of tied it off to the, um, my deck. <laughs> started to pull the lever. And uh, you know what moved? The deck. Thing didn't even didn't even shake, didn't even budge. So I gave it another couple of hours, dig, 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 and uh, I was young, I was fit, I could pull it off, and did it all again, and it didn't even budge. So after four hours, I thought, wow, this is not going anywhere. So I phoned a friend. So I got a friend to come out, and he was uh, he was a fireman, so he knew all about pulleys as well. And so we set up an all intricate system, and he dug, we dug for a couple more hours. It it didn't even shake. And so we're now coming mid-afternoon, and uh, we decided to phone another friend. 
who had a machine. <laughs> and this friend had an excavator, a big machine. And he trundled into the backyard, through the yard. I'm doing a Graham Fuller at that point, aren't I? And um, he came into the backyard and he started, and it took him an hour to dig the thing out. And when he digged it out, he began to lift it up, which tipped the machine over. It was so big. And eventually was able to cart it out to the front and get rid of it. But here's the thing, here's what I learned. Once, you, once I saw what it took to fix the problem of the golden cane palm, I realised how deep the problem was, you see. I, I could have got it out, but it would have taken me five years and 20 years of my life. Do you know what I mean? When you look at what it took, what was necessary to deal with my sin, that someone had to die in my place. You know, why did Jesus die? This is one of the key things. We face the wrath of God, the just and holy wrath of God because of our sin. And the only way out is that someone dies in our place. Now, I know that many of you get that. But if you're puzzled, it is deeply important to reflect on the reasons for Jesus' death. Why was the cross necessary? Because sin is so serious. What was necessary? Well, firstly, that someone dies in our place as a substitute. So serious is our sin. The second and the third are layers around that. That really is the core idea. But let me give you the layers around that. Uh, the, the, the big thing is the substitution. But secondly, what was necessary? Here it is. That that substitutionary death happened on a cross. A formal act of justice by the Roman Empire on, as judgment upon this man. It was necessary it happened on a cross. It couldn't just be any death in a back alley somewhere. Why not? Because the cross signified something critically important. It was the sign from the Old Testament. It was the sign that a person who died on a cross was under the curse of God. Galatians chapter 3. Anyone who died on a cross was under the curse of God. It was a horrific death and it was so horrific that everyone was aware and the Bible taught us this, that to, to die that kind of death was to truly be cursed by God. And it was necessary that Jesus died like this because the ones that he stands in for were themselves, are themselves, under the curse of God. We are, by our sin, attracting the judgment, the curse of God. And so it was necessary for our substitute to die under that very same curse on a cross by stepping into our circumstances, dying the death we deserve, judged, formally condemned. And so that's why chapter 11. You see, the point of chapter 11 is to record for us that the hostility against Jesus, which was there, I mean, Jesus provoked it, didn't he? There was all kinds of elders and priests and, and Pharisees who just got, Jesus got under their skin they were outraged at what he did and when he did it and what he said and that he claimed these things for himself. There was hostility growing. They wanted to kill him. But what you find in chapter 11 is that now, verse 47, the Sanhedrin's involved. It's now an official event of the highest ruling body of the Jewish nation 
who have themselves now determined that he has to die, which sets the scene to hand Jesus now, not just over to a lynch mob, but to hand him over formally to the Romans, who were the ones empowered to enact that judicial act of crucifixion. Do you see, what we see here is Jesus' provoking playing out into a heightened thing that comes to the Sadducees, sorry, that comes to the Sanhedrin, so that now it can operate at that level, an act of formal judgment against this man under the curse of God. You see, what was necessary to save us? That Jesus die as a substitute. What was necessary, secondly, that he die on a cross to signify to the world how serious sin is. To live unforgiven is to have the judgment of God hanging over you. A judgment that shows itself in the cross. The horror of separation from God. The cross is a vivid way that God shows how terrifying that future is. But it also shows the great love of God, which I'll come back to. What was necessary? That Jesus be a substitute. That secondly, he be a substitute under the curse of God on the cross. It took this formal elevation of the hostility for that to occur but third what was necessary that this be God's will that this not just be a human finding some way to climb their way to God and do something for God what was necessary is that we see that all of this is of God he has come for us to do this for us that's why verse 51 you see, Caiaphas, off his own bat, says, you don't, you, you don't realise it's better for you that one man die for the people and the whole nation perish. It's better that we have a substitute to save us politically from the wrath of Rome. But verse 51, John is led to see by the Spirit of God and the revelation perhaps of Jesus himself that he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for the nation but the scattered children of God. John tells us this most important truth, that the cross of Christ, the whole terrible series of events, the hostility that was growing that led to this now formal enactment by the priest, the high priest, its elevation to the Roman rule, he shows us that all of this whole terrible series of events was according to God's plan. It was God who had determined that it was better that one man die for the people than that the people die. That wasn't Caiaphas's idea, or it was, but it was God's idea that one man die in the place of the people and the scattered children of God. God says it was better. It was God's determination. It was God who decided in his eternal counsels that it would be better that Jesus dies in the place of sinners. This was God's idea. It was his will to crush his son. Isaiah chapter 53. Does this not now humble you further? And are you not filled with wonder? God was in Christ 
working to pay such a price to reconcile you and me to himself. Why? Why would he do such a thing? Why would it be his will to crush it? Why would he work all this hostility and the handing over Jesus to the... Why would he do all of that? Because he loves you and he loves me and he loves his son more in the future. Because God so loved the world that he gave his own, that he gave. We didn't take him. It was his idea to give his son. This was all of God who came to seek and save the lost. The people who had rejected him, had been in hostile towards him, been his enemies. He came for us while we were still enemies. You know, you might then be led to ask the question, why did Jesus die or who killed Jesus? This is a question, interestingly, that uh, a theologian called John Stott, uh, who's now left us to be with the Lord, in a book called The Cross of Christ, a very wonderful book, he poses this question, who killed Jesus? And he says there are a number of answers. Who killed Jesus? Well, at one level, the Romans did. They executed him. But at another level, it was the Jews who handed him over. At another level, it was Jesus himself, who has the power and right to give over his life and take it back again. No one takes it from him, he says. I have the power. Jesus hands his life. He provoked all of this. But at the deepest level, who handed Jesus over to die? God did. It was his will to crush his son. Because that was necessary to save you and me. Now, you might ask a further question, actually, and just do this very quickly. Uh, was it just that God, hand, the Father, hands over the Son? Doesn't that feel a little unjust? I mean, Caiaphas, when he says, um, better that Jesus dies in the place of the people, that's an evil, wicked thing. Let's make someone who's got nothing to do with any of this die so that we don't have to. It's a wicked, evil thing. How is it not wicked for God the Father to hand over the Son so that we might live? Well, because of who the Son is. Because of Trinitarian theology. Because the Son is not an independent third party. The Son, of course, is God in the flesh, come amongst us himself. It's the offended one who comes to step into the place of the offenders. And that makes it not only just, but holy and gracious and full of love. Let me just explain forgiveness for you in a moment. Were you aware that whenever you forgive someone, What's required is for you to bear the cost yourself of their offence. Have you worked this out? Whenever someone offends against you and you forgive them, someone has to bear that cost. And forgiveness means you're going to bear it. It's important to know if you're going to forgive people. Now, in a very terrible context, and let me give you a trigger warning, I'm going to talk about adultery. I know some of you, that's a very painful subject, forgive me, but it's important to deal with this. Um, a friend tells the story of a, a real story of a, a man who had committed adultery, um, betrayed his wife. Um, she, as, a, as an act of grace, forgave him. Now, adultery does not mean that the wife has to forgive. It is a cause, an appropriate cause for the end of a marriage. But she was captured by the love of God for her, how God had been gracious to her, a sinner, and so she had an instinct to be gracious to those who had hurt her and so wanted to show grace and generosity to her husband who had acted, who repented and so on. And so she did this. But 
at great cost. The husband came home early from work one time and uh, heard behind the bedroom door weeping, his wife crying in prayer to God. And in her prayer, she was crying out, Lord, uh, I want to forgive. It's my desire, determination to forgive. Please help me bear the pain of my forgiveness. And what he realised was, it wasn't cheap for her to forgive. It was costly, as it always is. Forgiveness always means the person who has been offended and who forgives, they have to absorb the pain. Now, just to say for you who are in that kind of context, that marriage works, as do many others amongst us who have gone through the same journey. There is a future after that kind of brokenness. If there's repentance and forgiveness, there's hope. Always remember that. But there's pain and cost. You know, um, here's the thing. When you offend another person, no one else can bear the cost except the offended one. When we sin against God, Psalm 51, and Him only, it's Him who has to bear the cost if He forgives. And that's the cross. God does not come and make someone else pay. He comes and takes on flesh himself, John chapter 1. The offended one, the one who's been betrayed, bears the cost of our sin in himself, in the most holy, righteous act the universe has ever seen. An event full of glory. But that's what was necessary to save you. That someone stands in your place as a substitute that they do it on a cross and that it be God at work to do it for you. You know, I said at the outset that um, all of this is going to humble us and lift us up. Let me take you through those two things to finish. Humble us. You know, this has the power to humble us because this is what was necessary. Sin is no small thing. When you see what was necessary... To deal with it, you see the magnitude that it must be. How deep sin's roots must be in the human heart. How greatly offensive it is to the infinite majesty of God. You see how worthy and deserving we are of condemnation. You, you, you can get some inkling of how serious it is, which means, friends, you cannot pay for sin yourself. You, you cannot deal with it by turning over a few, by performing a few religious rituals, by turning over a new leaf. You, you can't go to church enough, pay enough, give enough to deal with it, it's so serious. What's required is the death of a substitute on a cross by the hand of God. That's how serious it is. Doesn't that humble you? But it also humbles us because what we see here is a display of the power of God just, just reflect with me very quickly. Caiaphas, the high priest, speaks his own words freely. But what we're told is that the sovereign God is so powerful, he is able to rule over every single word that Caiaphas says so that it's his words. Without stopping Caiaphas being an agent who's responsible. We just don't have any conception of the power that that takes. You know, because whenever we think of having the power to rule something else and control it, we think it's, we must have puppets. And so we think if God is sovereign over people, then we must be puppets. We're not puppets, so we can't be... So no, no, no. That's because we're, we're taking our 
pathetic conceptions of what power looks like in sovereignty. We can only think of being sovereign over puppets. But actually, we do have a little bit of an inkling when you think, if you expand a little bit, we do have some power over free will agents. Dogs. Some. You can start to get a sense that we are powerful enough to control dogs' behaviour, though they're still agents themselves. But you can't, I mean, I've got a beagle. You can't do anything really to make it do whatever, it just does what it wants to do. But, um, but many dogs, you can get, as, you're not, not perfect, but you start to get, well, here's the deal. God is infinitely beyond us, such that his control and power means that he can control people who are truly able to make their own choices without being diminished by God's sovereignty over them. Is that not humbling? We live in a world with the power of God who's like that, who rules over every moment, your moments, who cannot be thwarted. You can't stand against this God. His end will come as he determines it will come. Humbling. But it lifts us up. The God with such power, how does he use it? To seek and save you. God so loved the world. He so loved you that he did all of this. He loves his son, we'll come to that. But he did it because of his love for you. Is that not exalting? He is a God of love, a God of grace, who sees rebellious people and instead of just destroying, comes himself to pay the ultimate price under his own curse to absorb into himself what you and I deserve. What love is this? God, who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. You are loved by this God if you have put your trust in the Lord Jesus and you are safe in his hands. The God who is sovereign such that he can cause the words of Caiaphas to be whatever words he wants, to control the hostilities, to lead towards the cross, to have an eternal plan that can't be thwarted. If you're in his hands, you're safe. And if he died for you while you were his enemy, how much more now that you've been reconciled will he do all things for you? Is this not go home humbled yet lifted up? and encouraged. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do pray that that might exactly be the case, that you might help us appreciate what was necessary because of the seriousness of sin. But in seeing what was necessary, help us please be humbled and lifted up. Help us appreciate that you are worthy of all praise, that we have much to rejoice in, that this is the most important news we could ever hear. Help us therefore praise you and rejoice in all that you've done and live before you with great humility, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.